0: Hi, welcome back to the People Data for Good podcast. I'm here with Misha Ann Martin. Misha Ann, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing all right. How are you?
0: I'm doing fantastic to be talking to you on this Friday. So <laughs> hey, if you would, you'll know, please introduce yourself.
1: Sure, my name is Misha Ann Martin and I am an industrial organizational psychologist. I've been doing this work for quite some time, almost two decades. Currently, I am the Senior Director of People Analytics and Research at WorkHuman on the WorkHuman IQ team, which is our analytics team.
0: Now, Misha Ann, you've been doing this for a while, and I am honored to be speaking with you. You are a virtuous person. You are also someone who actually puts these virtues, these, these good ideas into action. Because it's not only you know being a good person, as we discussed uh, on Fafal Live uh, last week, it's really about taking appropriate action. So you know, if you would, I'd like to step back and you know, how did you get here? You know, to senior director yeah. you know, of you know Re- people analytics and research at Workhuman. I mean, what were some of your motivations? What's your background?
1: Yeah, so that's that's quite the story. Um, I am originally Jamaican, born and raised and I came to the United States for college in 1996. When I got here, I realized, Al, that all of a sudden I was black. (laughs) I didn't. It's not something I ever really thought about living in Jamaica. And so, you know, I think this journey really started with me coming to grips with my own identity in this new country. And um, I started studying diversity topics way back then in undergrad and continued that in college. As I did that and started to educate myself, I realized that there were really differences in opportunity for different types of people. And I wanted to make a difference. And so I kind of resolved to um, be that person to help use data, analytics, measurement, to make HR practices more objective. I felt like the more objective we could make decision-making, the less bias would creep in. And then we could hold ourselves accountable by measuring that. And that's how I started. You know, that's how I started on this career path. I've done it with uh, starting with employee selection. And then I went on to employee experience and engagement surveys. And then I just went broader with, you know, uh, life cycle analytics.
0: Well, with your background coming from Jamaica, can mm-hmm. you speak to you mentioned it right at the outset, you realized that you were a black woman in a different place. And we celebrate in America itself being a melting pot, you know, where, and and, like, it's a good thing. However, as we know, there is prejudice, there is racism in our society that has to be acknowledged and, and dealt with. So my question to you is when you came over, I imagine, was it a shock? You know, and how did you, you know, deal with it? Did you have a a friend group that you connected with? You know, how did you navigate particularly early on?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I actually had a really soft landing because I went to an HBCU. So, that's a historically black college university. And so, in essence, uh before I had to acclimate to, you know, America at large, I was first acclimating to other Black people, Mm -hmm. right? Blacks from here, Blacks from Africa, and it allowed me to slowly acclimate to the broader context. So I am so grateful to HBCUs in general and my particular HBCU, Morgan State, because I landed in a safe space that allowed me to take baby steps in terms of that broader acclimation.
0: I got chills as you were saying that because we do very little alone in life. You know, we walk, we chew, we eat, but even the ground we walk on, you know, if it's concrete or wood or something, somebody else laid that down, as as you well know, and being very aware of others' contributions and particularly, correct me if I'm wrong, based on your experience, at a young age, the value of peers, the value of inclusion and belonging what i'm taking away is that you felt included that you felt like you were in a place that you belong is is that fair
1: i did and one of the things they did was they strategically paired me with another jamaican from my roommate so that i had a built-in support system you know even as i was acclimating to um the african-american culture right which wasn't exactly my culture either Mm -hmm. so yes that support network is super, super important.
0: And particularly at that juncture of life, right? You're starting to individuate, you're getting out on on your own. And, you know, we're going to have to come back to this uh, because that obviously relates to what organizations can and should be doing to create this sense of belonging and and safety. Uh, Actually, I'm just going to let you respond to that real quick. Would you say, would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, so one of the constructs that are of big interest right now to lots of people, including WorkHuman, is this idea of psychological safety. You know, we've all been going through a lot in this past year, two years, going on three years, and when times get tough, that support system is even more important, right? And so psychological safety creates the space for people to seek the support they need in organizations. And our research says that we're not doing that well in terms of psychological safety. Um, On one of our surveys last year, on a scale of one to five, the average is only 3.47. And furthermore, some people were significantly lower than that, some groups. So women were lower, parents were lower, and non-whites were lower. So arguably the people that needed the most to be able to be vulnerable and say, hey, I'm really struggling here. I need additional support. Think about all the things that parents went through you know, during the pandemic. We were serving those people the least. So there's a real opportunity to do better overall and to do better for the people that need it the most.
0: With that in mind, you know, how does that happen? I mean, psychological safety is simple if you will, to, yeah. to get your head around. Um, however, to put it in practice, you know, as a habit, whether you be a leader or a colleague or, or mm-hmm. otherwise, um, is a different challenge. And then in turn to do it at scale and make it part yeah. of your team's culture or organizational culture is yet another challenge. Uh, right. thoughts on how to make that happen.
1: Yeah, so I think the first thing, like how did the miss happen in the first place? This is why I'm so passionate about analytics. I think companies miss a lot because they don't measure it. Hmm. So how many companies are measuring how safe people feel? You know, we happen to have found this because we studied it. So organizations should get in the discipline of holding themselves accountable for providing the same positive experience to all kinds of people in the organization. How do we improve it? How do we actually make psychological safety happen in organizations? I believe that the relationship between an individual and their leader is the building block of their experience with an organization. And I like to refer to this term that I coined called the generous check-in, which means checking in frequently, checking in genuinely, asking people how they're doing on a frequent cadence And also being vulnerable yourself so that people feel like if they're struggling, if they've made a mistake, if they have something tough to say, that they can say that because you have modeled that behavior appropriately as a leader.
0: I love it. I also acknowledge that many don't have the skills or experience to hold space for another in that way and that takes knowledge and practice, and uh, you know, come back to that in a second. I also acknowledge too the reality, and maybe our listeners are thinking the same thing and so far is that we all are constrained by time. So if we have you know, five meetings a day, and you know, those meetings are supposed to be 50 minutes to an hour, and some are gonna be group meetings, some are gonna be individual meetings, if we spend all the time talking about our feelings and, and being vulnerable, that's how we would spend the whole day. And if, if not more, um, so correct me if I'm wrong again, and I'm saying that a lot for some reason, but, <laughs> um, well, it it's <laughs> it's, um, you know, how to allocate ample time. So it's just not transactional that it's truly, mm-hmm. you know, authentic, but also, having the ability to focus on the work that needs to be done as well. So finding that balance, can you speak to that?
1: Yeah. And, you know, frankly, Al, I think we've made a mistake. Mm -hmm. I think that in general, you know, we tend to focus on the things that need to be done, you know, like the tasks and the performance and the outcomes and don't get me wrong. Those things are important, but those things are accomplished by people. Mm -hmm. And so if we're focusing on the things And not focused on the people that's terrible strategy because the people are not going to do the things so in order to get the things done you focus on the people and as a leader your job and enabling the people to do the things are your job right Mm -hmm. so that is that is and should be your primary focus it's not something that you should you know scrape time out for as a luxury it is what you should be doing as a matter of course and as your primary priority. And if you do that, the things will come, the outcomes will come, because the people are not only satisfied, but they're thriving.
0: Now, I 100% agree with you. (laughs) (laughs) If I am some macho dude, uh, I might go, hey, I don't wanna be friends with everybody. I, I, you know, I people just, gotta do what they're told and and just get after it and i don't you know we don't have time and you know again i'm being playing a role a little bit and and, and being cynical but how to address those types of folks who just might not be there yet you know we can say this until we're blue in the face but you know there has to be some impetus for them to open up and change, you know, their behavior, or you know, is there an element of that uh, way of being that is appropriate in some circumstances? I mean, I I don't know.
1: I mean, I think it is always productive to be execution oriented, but it is a real needed mindset shift to realize that you know we accomplish those things through people, and so I think for people that are resistant, it's the evidence that really helps. And that's why I love research. So when you're talking about somebody who is execution and outcome oriented, you can look to, for example, the studies that have to do with psychological safety and quality. So if somebody is not comfortable pointing out to you something that might be wrong and something that might cause a bigger issue, that's an inefficiency. That's an outcome that is now compromised. That's something that may have to be redone. And so you can link the feeling stuff to the outcome stuff with good, solid research and evidence.
0: So, Jeffrey Pfeffer.
1: I love him. So do I. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: Great fortune of um, he was a keynote at our our conference here in San Francisco in January uh, 2020, right before COVID hit. Mm -hmm. And he, of course, is the author of many books, among them, uh, Dying for a Paycheck and Mm -hmm. The Knowing Doing Gap. And the knowing doing gap uh, conceptually is what I want to ask you about, because, yes, I agree with you. If we measure and analyze dynamics within the workforce and how people are thinking and feeling, you know, we can make you know, better decisions and we can highlight some opportunities for improvement, uh, particularly if we're measuring those ongoing, we can see you know shifts and, and so forth. However, when we bring insight to the fore, and this is happening and has happened over the past several years uh, in the political realm, it the insight, no matter how evidence-based it is, no matter how high or how high the R squared or or you know confidence interval, whatever it is, um, it's still not carrying the day sometimes. So right. we have to package and communicate these insights more effectively. If you agree, what are some of the ways that you've either seen insights communicated effectively, or what would you advocate be done?
1: So I think the insights only create the motivation, which is the beginning. So, you know, you have to do that in a persuasive format. And what is most persuasive depends on who you're talking to. You can't convince everybody the same way. So you have to kind of get to know your audience and tailor that accordingly. But I think the missing step, which is why action often doesn't come from that insight and that increased motivation is because we fail to address the idea of self-efficacy. We don't tell people how. So I'll give you a specific example. I think we failed a lot of our leaders and our first time leaders, for example. Like when was the last time you heard of an organization training a manager how to do a good one-on-one. So we tell people, create a space, you know, enhance psychological safety, but we don't, sometimes we just don't give them the tips for how. Something just as simple as a one-on-one template. Here's an agenda. Here's a little job aid. For example, something that I do with my team every week is we do best of, worst of, and then best thing you ate for fun. <laughs> what is the best thing? That happened to you this week. It could be work or personal. What is the worst thing that happened to you? It could be worst thing or personal. And then tell me about something you ate. And even that just structure, it sounds silly, but providing that structure for people can fill the gap of the how so that they can move from, okay, I'm motivated to do this thing to now I know how to do this thing.
0: I'm going to... Take that slash steal that actually i'm going to ask permission to use that (laughs) (laughs) and now i would like to do a follow-up survey with all our community members and listeners to see who else adopts that (laughs) approach (laughs) it's fantastic and what came to mind as you shared it 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 uh it creates authentic conversation and feelings because I think in many cultures around the world, in fact, there is research to this that I recall hearing, that food is an expression of love and connection. And so, if we're talking about food, it's, it humanizes uh, the interaction. And so, I, yeah. I celebrate that. And again, I'm I'm taking it straight away. I'm I might do that you know, this afternoon. But you know, what you're talking about with the guides and and tips and, and so forth, tell me more about you know what that you know, looks like because people would then have to have some receptivity to nudging themselves and doing mm-hmm. things maybe a little bit different based on the different people that they are interacting with, because I don't have to you know, tell you, you know, that, um, particularly given your background, that you know, people are different. We're, we have yeah. certain predispositions, we have life experiences that, so we can't cookie cutter our approach to people. So as an individual remaining open to different ways to, interact. So again, the pointed question, interacting with these tips and guides, what would you advocate uh, a process be to keep people or pry people in some cases open to adopting some of these ways of doing things differently?
1: I think you can give people options, right? So for example, some people are more free flowing and you can just give them bullets to cover. Some people might need, you know, like prompt or questions some people might need a structured template that they type into. If you give people the different options that can conceivably achieve the same outcomes, then people can choose what works best for them and eventually evolve into their own style, which is actually the the best because it's the most genuine and the most authentic.
0: Yeah, well, I love it. And th- these guides, uh, there's so much... Popular literature um, out there from Brené Brown, Sean Aker. We mentioned Jeffrey Pfeffer, and and so, and the power of habit, and Charles Duhigg, and this is there's a bunch of great stuff. Uh, Susan David just came out uh, with the book, uh, Emotional Agility, and talking about mm-hmm. emotional uh, stratification. I don't think that's the right word, but the idea that our emotions don't define us, that we have the ability to experience different emotions uh, at the same time so we can feel both good and sad at, you know at the same time which has been really eye-opening uh, for me um so what i am getting at is this is that all these researchers and thought leaders and and authors have these great ideas but a lot of them a lot of those practices a lot of that knowledge does not come to life within organizations it, it becomes right. like okay that's self-help and that's just personal yet you know organizations then you know, have a different culture different way of being and historically it's been hey this is the way it's done here and if you don't like it you can you know ship out but organizations now are struggling to keep talent as you know attract talent so the cost of not adopting more evolved progressive ways of doing things is is, is increasingly real so to wrap this around to what extent would a individual manager or leader uh, adopt some of this new ways of thinking that's constantly being generated and constantly being socialized like through brene Brown's podcast for example you know that someone hears something but they you know the the workplace isn't responding you know, so you know what would it be like if there's a future where, hey, you know there's new research and this we're going to adopt this, and so the mm-hmm. the time from knowledge to actually making it pervasive in a certain organization gets shrunk down. So the ability to customize is ultimately what I'm getting at. Do you think there's room for that?
1: I do think there's room for that. I think you know there's a lot of information out there now, and it can be really overwhelming. I think for someone who is trying to improve in the area of leadership, maybe one thing to do is to try one new thing that you've heard about every week and see how it lands. Did that work for you and your team? Did it fit in your organization? If it seemed to have gone positively, try it again, (laughs) try to make it a habit, try to fit it to you and your team. You know, then when you feel comfortable with that, add something else. Because I think again to the point of self self-efficacy, I think people get overwhelmed right like which of this advice should I take how should I incorporate it and um, it often turns unfortunately into an action
0: well thank you for saying that because the idea that an organization, creates a leadership development strategy or learning strategy, and, you know, they high-five and say, okay, we're done, <laughs> and just no. move on is is not, you know, appropriate, and I've seen over the years that that kind of be the case, and I just became aware of um, just yesterday that the whole talent development group in one uh, prominent organization just, they just got, Evaporated. They were they. They were told, wow. to go. and because they weren't delivering, and it was based on uh, the fact that, and again, this is hearsay, and I'm going to learn more about it. But uh, what I heard clearly was that they were just taking legacy models uh, that were right. being kind of replicated time and again, well, we did this at our last employer, therefore we're going to do it at, at, at this employer. And it just wasn't carrying the day because it wasn't agile or, or, or nimble enough. So you know, as we enter this, enter, we're already in it. You know, this reality of remote work and hybrid work, and uh, we're still going to be evolving over the years ahead. And you know, when we talk about new normal I don't know if you know what that means, please, please let me know. But it's like we have to be adapting. We have to uh, learn and improve. So my point of question, again, is how would you advocate leaders think differently? Uh, because for me – I see like learning and diversity equity inclusion um, and talent acquisition uh, being in silos oftentimes and they're not creating a true end-to-end uh, employee experience. Like what's being sold about the experience uh, with an employer is often different than the reality once, sometime, when, once somebody comes in. So how do you shrink that delta you know, and deliver on your promises?
1: Yeah. So one of my favorite books is work rules Mm. and I like it because (laughs) do you have it? (laughs) I like it because of the idea. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Laszlo Bach. I love it. It's one of my favorites and I find it really inspirational. I think that with a lot of these things, you know, we throw stuff at the wall and we don't experiment and measure to see what's working. And so I think one of the new ways that we can evolve right now as we're moving towards a different time is to get really good at that. The hybrid workforce is not the same as you know, fully remote or fully on-site. what are the differences? Uh, what do people need that's different? How do people respond to communications and messaging based on how they work? All of these things are things that we need to get really disciplined at asking and answering.
0: Yeah, I, I love it. We're going to have to put together a reading list based on our discussion here. So, <laughs> hey, I want to step back because you, uh, congratulations, you got recently promoted. And so tell us about your role there at Work Human and specifically uh, some of the research projects that you either like to highlight or what you have planned uh, to work on here in the near future.
1: Yeah, so I lead a team of analysts that are dedicated to showing the impact of human centered practices and technology. So essentially, and um, specifically what we do is we link data from our work human cloud. So, or social recognition or continuous performance management um, or celebration suite. We link data from that to talent and business outcomes. And some of my favorites are the studies that we do that show that our technologies change the way that people feel in a way that others can see and we can um, measure and show based on the outcomes we're looking at. Like when you do a study that shows that, you know, customer satisfaction increases as a result of social recognition or patient satisfaction or safety or productivity, those are really exciting because that is the evidence that how people feel matters, not just because it matters how they feel, but because, you know, it it drives other things. So in terms of what we're working on, we are really proud that we focus on things that matter at the moment. So not only do we do our work with our independent clients and look across our database, we do our own independent research as well. And so now we are focused on research that will give um, HR and leaders information on how do we function in this new normal, so to speak? What are the differences in terms of needs and outcomes for um, the different ways that people work? So that's what we're we're focusing on right now.
0: Yeah, I absolutely love it. And embedded in that is the reality that any HR leader or business leader, uh, well, HR leaders are business leaders, so I don't wanna get called out on that. <laughs> so, um, but any leader, is they have their what I would call structure of interpretation, their educational Mm -hmm. experience, their employment experience, their relationships that have formed how they view the world. And that world is changing at an ever-increasing rate, as I'm sure you'll agree and listeners will agree. Uh, So the ability to learn appropriately, at speed, at scale is absolutely critical. And then it invites then the question, what am I learning and for what purpose? You know, what action am I going to take? So my question results in who's the audience for your research? And you alluded to it a little bit at the outset. I really want to focus on the second part is what actions do you hope you know they take you know, as a result?
1: yeah so the answer to the first question is every single person in the whole entire world (laughs) if you are an employee you know we want you to know what work could look like right these are the things that you should be seeking for yourself i'm really proud that the cutting edge research that we do it's not just available to our clients anybody can go onto our website under the resources section and see all our case studies, or papers, and have access to our research. So our audience is pretty much everybody. What do we hope people will do? We hope that they will implement, based on our research, human-centered practices for leading and engaging people at work. Things like inclusive recognition programs. So appreciating people at work for who they are, and what they bring to work for their accomplishments outside of work and doing that equally across groups as an example.
0: Yeah, I I'm getting really excited about a lot of things. I am going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to check myself a little bit because I as a as a partner, as a re- fan of research, you know, I mm-hmm. I have a lot of ideas that are emerging and let me just take off of one real quick because mm-hmm. you know if I'm a leader, I'm getting bombarded with content. I'm getting bombarded with um, yeah, infographics and yeah. you know articles, and uh, people want my attention. I'll, you know, all fine and good. Yeah. So, to identify the content and research that is most relevant to the system for which I am responsible at that point of time is really important. And let me explain further before I let you respond. Uh, I grew up professionally in the 90s and I had a fantastic role at GAP in the early 2000s, which led me into the people analytics workforce planning world. And it was the case where at the time, everything was about GE. GE, mm-hmm. PepsiCo, it's like, you know, Let GE way. Yeah, you know, it's like, you know, so it was hard to escape it because many executives had either come through GE or PepsiCo. And so there was a lot of historical um, inertia. And so the ideas that had to come to the fore almost had to go through that gateway, go through that lens. And oftentimes, like GE and PepsiCo, you know, consumer product company and industrial manufacturer weren't appropriate for retail, you know, it right. just it, it, the, the mindset. So there has to be a level of creativity. So what I'm getting at, do you believe that there is, when a leader prioritizes research, that they have a responsibility to themselves and those that they serve to curate the content and research that's most appropriate for the system for which they're responsible, including analyzing and researching that system itself?
1: I don't know, Al, like I'm a fan of consuming more rather than less Mm -hmm. and keeping an open and questioning mind. So I wouldn't say to, you know, limit yourself at the offset. I would say consume as much as you reasonably can, Mm -hmm. but then ask yourself the critical questions of will this fit here Mm -hmm. and why? Mm -hmm. I think just that process of asking those questions really encourages innovation and creativity rather than staying in, in a pretty narrow
0: lane. No, I actually l- love what you shared right there. And thank you, because it is the case where we have, you know, the advantage of diverse perspectives and ideas uh, coming from yeah. different industries. And so that constant refresh and challenging of norms yeah. you know, absolutely has to happen. What I'm trying to get to is, your research specifically, yeah. yeah. What? How would you distinguish your research from other research that's out there?
1: Yeah, I would say that we have um, access to one of the best databases in the world of how people interact with each other at work. So, you know, when I did Pafal, we put up or <laughs> we put up our um, our client slides. And we've got some of the best brands and some of the best cultures as our clients. And we don't just have part of those organizations. We have the entirety of those organizations. So we have tens of millions of data points um, and Mm -hmm. language around how people interact with, with each other at work. And I think that that access to that data plus the people that are analyzing that data. So I haven't really talked a lot about our analytics team, but our analytics team is stellar. We've got a whole team focused on analyzing language. We've got a team about that focuses on user experience, and we deliberately hire people from different analytics backgrounds so that we're truly multidisciplinary. So when you match that talent with that fantastic, amazing data set, we know a lot of things. <laughs> And we have a lot of power to do great research. And we do.
0: And yes, you do. I, I saw some of it last week. And uh, yeah, it's one of the reasons I, I reached out because uh, I've been a fan and we've talked about doing something like this together for a long time. And here we are. So yeah, thank you and keep doing the great work that you are doing, you and your team are doing. And so I want to talk a little bit about the, the future and you, where you believe we're headed. Both, you know, both. Well, what's hopeful and, and what's scary, uh, you know, because here we are in February, 2022. And um, I frankly thought we'd be further ahead on some fronts um, there. However, on other fronts that is, there's worthwhile celebrations to be had. Um, and so, you know, what, what do you believe we are? And what are some of the opportunities that you think or feel that we need to be taking advantage of uh, moving forward?
1: Yeah, I think this trend towards um, hybrid working in one sense makes diversity easier, and in another sense makes diversity and inclusion harder. And I think that is one of the bigger challenges that faces us. And so I'll explain. Um, In a lot of places, when you were doing fully um, on site work and people weren't open to remote working, you were limited by the demographics of where your organization was. And so I think now, Um, with that increased flexibility um, and with fully remote, that you can recruit from a broader demographic area and get different types of people into the workplace. However, that now means that we have to address the environment. And as I mentioned before, our research is showing that the environment is not feeling the same for everybody. So, lower psychological safety for some groups. Um, In one of our surveys, we found that most of our people who are intending to look for a new job were parents. Blacks were the most likely to say they wanted uh, more flexibility, and that's the reason that they were looking for a new job. There was this fantastic article in the New York Times about, you know, Black women not wanting to return to the workplace because they wanted a respite from those microaggressions. So, Now it's time for us to have a reckoning about the environment that we're creating so that everyone feels comfortable, um, not just comfortable, but happy, passionate, thriving at work. Because it is my fear that the people on site will start to look far less diverse than we had before the pandemic. And then, and also that the people that are not on site all the time will kind of become second-class, you know, organizational citizens. So, we've got to be really, really thoughtful about how we proceed to this next phase.
0: Well, I want to ask you about returning to the workplace, you know, what microaggressions look like and before I do, uh, and what we can do about it to prevent that uh, from happening. Uh, the it said, and I'm not going to get this perfectly correct, but tourism walks arm in arm with peace, and that seems maybe random because it is. <laughs> but but the essence is this: is that when we were together in the workplace, um, there was the chance to mingle, to run into somebody, right. and. Um, You get to know them. Yet, in many cases, we're isolated, and we're seeing people through a screen. So, the ability to connect is lessened. And um, Aaron Hurst, uh, founder and CEO of Imperative, has a great narrative on this around uh, our uh, peripheral. You know, we have our core relationships, but you know, kind of the second tier has been compromised in um, Mm -hmm. you know since the pandemic hit. So. Going back to the idea of returning to workplace and and, and microaggressions and the fact that we haven't been tourists, we haven't, we've been with our kind of core group and oftentimes that's not as diverse as the broader workforce is or will be. Do you see risk and opportunity in that return to workplace? And if so, what can be done about it?
1: I do think, you know, there's both. Um, There is risk. And there is opportunity. I think this is a time for us to be a lot more thoughtful in terms of, you know, the things we're doing to attract and retain and making sure that they work for everyone. So I'll go back to the idea of experimenting and measuring outcomes. You know, that's, to me, what being thoughtful means, Mm -hmm. trying things and seeing if they work and seeing if they work for different types of people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Microaggressions. When I hear that, I it makes me sad because <laughs> yeah, I can I can imagine how it makes someone feel, and it also the person who is making a microaggression, if that's the right way to put the words together, sometimes might not be doing so consciously, uh, right? Or they could be doing it consciously. So, you know, what are some thoughts around on both sides of that equation? You know, how can someone become more aware of how they're showing up, uh, particularly to not only uh, Black people in our society, um, but women and and others?
1: Yeah. So, I think uh, psychological safety is the answer here, right? Because what needs to happen is people need to speak up and say, "Hey, that was not so cool." right? And that requires an environment that makes you feel safe to do that. And then the person on the other end of that should not be defensive (laughs) and should have, you know, an open mind to hearing um, what that person is saying. And for bonus points, should practice not doing that behavior anymore and asking for an accountability partner, to check them to make sure that's not happening. So some of the specifics that, you know, I sometimes see, um, this is so apparent on Zoom sometimes, sometimes even more than in person, but, uh, and there's research around this, women getting interrupted a lot or not getting a lot of speaking time in meetings or not having their ideas credited to them. Or my favorite, this is sarcasm. When a woman has a great idea, you know, a male in the room acts like they're surprised. Like, that's a really good idea. I know, but why are you surprised, though? <laughs> wow. So it's it's the small things that are like, you know, paper cuts to the soul.
0: Wow. I mean, it's, I would love to see data on that, but I would venture to say mm-hmm. that the great majority, and I'm talking like 80, 90% of men would be unaware that that is yes. happening. And yeah. that. Again, it's both sad, but therein lies a great opportunity for men in that example to become more self-aware. And then it invites the question, is that self-awareness going to be driven by their self in their own journey? Or is the organization going to have a role in elevating that self-awareness? Because many leadership development programs that would have this type of exercise or content would be exclusive to leaders. However, this is happening throughout an organization. So do you think this type of uh, uh, self-awareness can or should be prodded uh, or inspired by the organization or enabled, I guess is the best word, by the organization? And if so, I would imagine it would have to be for all employees, not just leadership, yeah?
1: I would agree with that. So the organization can tell individuals what kinds of things to look out for, what kinds of behaviors are not okay, And then create an environment that's psychologically safe so that when things like that happen in real time, that individuals are comfortable speaking up and not always the person that's affected. That is the best part, right? Because I think the people that are impacted, they kind of get tired of speaking up. And so when the organization creates this awareness that, hey, these behaviors are not okay, it creates an opportunity for other people to speak up. And to advocate for that person instead of that person always having to advocate for
0: themselves. Mm. Gosh, I, I'm having a lot of thoughts on you know what can be done to improve, and I've seen many a gap in an HR or people strategy, you know, in this regard, and because many uh, organizations and are focusing on skills, um, and again, mm-hmm. they're it's great, right? You know, we're able to see skills more clearly, not only inside our organization, but outside the organization. There's, it's top of mind uh, as organizations are doing workforce planning, however. But when we talk about attracting talent, retaining talent, um, behaviors uh, carry the day, arguably. Um, I wouldn't even say arguably. Um, I consciously, for the record, don't use soft skills because I think that term was created by a bunch of dudes who wanted to be little um, feminine traits um, of which they did not have, so they tried to uh, shrink it down. Again, that's my own narrative. Um, but where I want to go with this is that number one, I celebrate that you're talking about and analyzing and, and encouraging uh, elevated awareness around behaviors, what to do about them and and the value of improving a culture, improving uh, behaviors, you know at scale. As we move forward, through time, Uh, what do you hope not only HR does, but leadership teams in general do? Uh, I've heard, yes, do research or uh, consider uh, research, Um, study your own workforce. However, the idea of bringing these formerly disparate processes of talent acquisition in with learning, in with comp, you know, all this, uh, all these, again, things that need to be done. Um, do you think there's room to improve, you know, governance and the forums in which these topics are discussed and insight taken and decisions made? Do you think there's improvement to be had there?
1: Yeah, I do. And I think that, you know, one of the things that needs to happen more, it's starting to happen a little bit now, but is increased transparency. Um, You know, I remember when I was doing this work about 10 years ago, and I don't know, maybe it's it's just the way organizations are. They like to put a positive spin on things, you know? And so there is a need for the organization as well to say, hey, here's where we are with this. It's not where we want to be hey, ERGs, we actually kind of need some help. We need some suggestions. We're disappointed that this turned out the way it did. We acknowledge that we don't have, you know, enough diversity and leadership. What do we need to do? I think those, tr- those conversations need to evolve. Um, sometimes what happens is, you know, um, organizations say, well, we're doing this and we're doing this and we're doing this and we're doing this. And the tone is a little like, all right. Oh, 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 okay. You know, instead of like more of a two-way conversation.
0: You oh, a hundred percent. Yes. And thank you for calling that out because there is a a case where if there's not the openness to learn and explore and admit that certain initiatives didn't work out as planned. Uh, yeah. I've seen many uh leader got to get too close to that project or whatever the uh, investment might have been, because they're fearful that if it didn't work, it's going to cost them their job. It's going to make them look bad or or what have you. When in fact, it's an opportunity to learn and improve. You know, not everything is going to be a home run. Um, so with that in mind, yeah, do you agree that there needs to be an elevated level of openness maybe in some leadership teams to – have that growth mindset
1: i do i definitely do i think that you know leadership teams need to be more comfortable with saying hey that wasn't okay or that didn't work or we tried it and we failed and you know it's back to psychological safety again if the highest uh ranked people in the organization if the the highest echelons, echelons <laughs> you
0: echelons
1: got it. Of leadership are comfortable you know admitting to mistakes then everybody else will as well
0: well i love it and so we have uh, a handful of minutes here maybe uh eight or so um there's a couple topics i want to uh discuss before we wrap number one is what are your what's your advice to young people because we've talked about the organization we've talked about hr we've talked about measurement and research uh the young people, those in career transition, those entering this new world of work that you know they not they don't have the kind of legacy stuff that they have to unlearn, so to speak. but you know, what would yeah. you advise that they do to develop themselves to be prepared for what is the future of work?
1: Yeah, I think first of all, you know work is such an important part of life, and we've gotten so many weird messages about that. I feel like if you come from a low-income background, you know, the message is just get a good job. Just get a good job. And good is defined as making a lot of money, not necessarily as a job that feeds your soul and is meaningful and makes your life better and makes you feel like you're contributing to the world. So the first thing I would say is kind of choose wisely, you know, like what is your passion in this world? How How do you want to leave your mark and make your stamp? And what kind of career and job would fulfill that not just what you're good at because sometimes what you're good at is not necessarily what you enjoy I know for example right now tech is a hot space you know and all these people are saying oh I just want to be in tech but what do you want to do in tech and why Mm -hmm. you know ask yourself those really tough questions and I think that will set people up for a long and meaningful career and not just ticking off the days until you retire.
0: Well, if I am young and I have the whole world in front of me, um, mm-hmm. the idea of getting a good job and entering the workforce is can be daunting, and it is daunting, right. and it. it uh, particularly young people can get paralyzed. You know, what do I major in? Where do I go to school? Uh, What certification do I do? Hey, that company's down the street. Therefore, I should, uh, you know, maybe apply to them. So how would you advocate, and this could not only be young people, but, uh, you know, those who are older as well, how would you advocate someone find their passion and explore the opportunities that are out there?
1: Yeah, try as many different things as you can. You know, those summer jobs take a different one every time.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) Uh, If you're doing internships in undergrad, try different things out. That's your opportunity. When you're on these internships, go outside the department that you're assigned and talk to different people and ask questions. I personally wish I had done more of that, you know, in my internship. And then if you choose something and you try it out and you realize you don't like it, don't be afraid to change paths. Mm -hmm. And this is gonna sound weird coming from a PhD, but you know, like maybe don't go to college just to go to college. I don't know, know what it is that you're going for and and what it is you wanna do. And if you don't know yet, take some time to figure that out. Oh my gosh, parents are going to hate me. Uh, Trade schools, those are an option. You know, the trades, we undersell the trades here um in the US I think and and those might be a really meaningful career path for some people.
0: Well as a parent, I Love that you're saying it. So, so no, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I thank you for saying that because it's important to be heard, particularly given the cost of college. Uh, is it appropriate? Right. There's this social uh, status associated with it, which oftentimes is misapplied. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. And to your point, too, is the trades are often very uh, appropriate given someone's interests and skills and abilities. Right. And uh, there's right. gross undersupply of workers yeah. in many of those roles. So, yeah, no, your point is extremely you know well taken. And Michonne, I could talk to you all day. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely good. And you know, we could cite your you. research uh, for days and, and weeks ahead. So yeah, as we wrap here, how can people learn more about you and the work that you're doing there at WorkHuman?
1: Yeah, so they can learn about me from my LinkedIn page. And my name is Misha Ann Martin. I'm pretty sure I'm easy to find on LinkedIn, but I'll spell <laughs> my first name: Misha Ann H A hyphen I'm on Twitter at Misha Ann and Workhuman.com. If you go to the resources section there are all these research goodies there for you and you don't have to be a client to access it.
0: Outstanding. Well, Mishan, thank you for sharing. Thank you for being your awesome self. And I can't wait to see you again in person. So hopefully that won't be too long. So thank you.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. It was an honor to be here.
0: Thank you for listening today. To learn more about the People Analytics and Future of Work community, the People Data for Good movement, And to contribute to the ongoing production of podcasts and shows that enable you to stay at the forefront of people analytics, workforce planning, diversity, equity, and inclusion, employee experience, and other themes that are affecting the future of work, then please visit Pafal.net. Again, thanks for being here and making great things happen.